Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, I speak with my colleague and mentor, David Kirkland. David speaks passionately about the need for equity and social justice for all students, especially those in urban contexts. We have a wide-ranging conversation about his history as a writer and as a teacher of writing and the need to create the conditions to help all of our students flourish. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today I get to speak with a colleague and a mentor and a scholar of true excellence, David Kirkland. He's the executive director of the NYU Metro Center. He is a scholar and cultural critic interested in language and literacy with a focus on urban education and equity. Welcome, David. Thank you, Troy. Welcome. Thank you. And as a way of introduction, normally I would ask uh, my guests to tell a little bit about themselves, but I'm wondering if you'd be so kind as to read a passage from your book, A Search Past Silence, The Literacy of Young Black Men, which is won multiple awards from NCTE and AERA and a few other organizations. And if you could tell us a little bit about your own path after you shared that passage, I think that would be a great way to start our conversation today. Thanks, Troy. I think I'll share a little bit about the book, um, a passage from the book. And then I want to really talk about, you know, the book and how it frames, you know, um, literacy. And then I'll talk a little bit about my own story in relationship to it. Um, but thank you for giving me space, you know, um, to share this work, um, which is close to my heart. I'm going to read from page 35 of Search Past Silence, the last paragraph. Masses of black males have been silenced, that is, oppressed, throughout the globe, either through prison systems or through discourses that grossly mischaracterize them. And since the colonial tide of Western hegemony first brushed the shores of Africa, Black male voices have been shackled from sea to shining sea, dumped into the middle passage of time, or left to rot on cotton-stuffed plantations where black trees fall in white forests without making a sound. Yet they have proved resilient, learning to use silence in the process of searching for voice. They found silence sometimes without looking in the processes of attempting to survive. In resisting the stubborn impulse of the inherited wind, and in searching for peace. In this way, silence represents a theory of the black man's reality. As much as they fear black males, people fear silence because of its mystery. They loathe it because of its magnificent power. They wield it because it gives its holders an authority equivalent to darkness. It makes things disappear, words and ideas, thoughts and deeds, people and their history. So thank you um, again, Troy. One reason I wanted to share that passage is because I think it sums up what I'm trying to do, you know, um, in the book Search Past Silence. When I'm talk- I want to talk about the institutional reality of what it means to be, you know, um, black and male in a system that's not necessarily designed to be responsive to you, not necessarily designed to hear you and hear the ways that you practice literacy. And so there's been research, a ton of research about young black men in ways that they lack literacy, the ways that they you know, do not perform or ways that they're not proficient when it comes to reading and writing. 
And yet when you go into their lives deeply, you see that they practice and participate in literate communities in, in ways that are extremely, extremely, you know, um, complex. They, they participate in ways that we, if value, could transform the way we think about literacy. And there's something about the silence, the not seeing of them. And there's something about a system that makes them behave and makes them quiet, you know, that does not import or, you know, sustain, you know, the types of cultural literacy practices that young Black men bring into the conversation. There's something about that system that gets it wrong. There's this quotation that talks about a flower, you know, not growing, right? If, if a flower is not growing in a garden, we do not blame that flower for not growing in that garden. In fact, we treat the environment if we want to fix, you know, um, the situation, right? We don't seek to fix the flower. We don't see, seek to, you know, um, fix the condition of the individual, but the conditions around the individual that creates the environment that, that would nurture her or him. A search past silence is about the flower. It's about what we can do when we appreciate the flower for what she brings into the world and the ways that we must fertilize and, and water the soil around her, the way we must create the conditions where she receives sunlight in order to grow, the way that we appreciate, you know, who she is and what she brings to the conversation. And so the idea of searching past silence means searching past the ways that we misrepresented, you know, um, black males in the literacy conversation. But let me be clear. While in my research, I talk about black men Certainly all vulnerable students in some ways have had their narratives, their experiences silenced. That systems have not been designed, you know, um, to hear them, to value them in ways that they should be valued. Um, and so that's what Church Fast Silence is attempting to do. It brings us closer to young black men in order to tell us something about literacy that is unique and powerful and passionate. Um, and it's been a privilege to share um, this insight you know, insight that I learned from six young men with the rest of the world. Thank you, Troy. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think we find ourselves at this moment where we have cultural conversations and, and journalism, like the 1619 Project, which are really bringing these to the fore. And knowing your work, knowing the passion that you bring to working with other educators and and knowing that you're doing work in New York City right now, focusing on the role of gifted education and uh, how students of color are vastly underrepresented in those gifted and talented programs. What are some of your current thoughts and ideas and ways that you're working with teachers, know knowing that the system we have of education right now is not necessarily providing the fertile conditions for all of these flowers to bloom. Right. Um, I, I thank you again for that, that question. I think uh, there are a few things that I would want to say. You know, part of, part of what I want to say is the role of teachers in transforming the system, right? You know, not just responding to or working with our young people. I think part of the problem in education, particularly literacy education that we see is that teachers have been sidelined when it comes to advocating for students. And one thing that I do encourage and that I want to encourage is that we get teachers off the sideline, that we empower teachers, or that we, that we help teachers to see themselves as empowered to transform the systems that you know, um, our students are in, right? That teachers have a responsibility 
in some ways to design and redesign those systems so that those systems are most responsive to all of our students, right? Henry Giroux and Stanley Aronowitz, they write a book in 1988 called Teaching Under Siege. And they begin to write about, you know, these four types of intellectuals, right? They theorize teachers as either hegemonic intellectuals, individuals fit within a system that works to oppress or accommodationist individuals, individuals who sit within a system, you know, um, who simply accommodate to that system and that system's outcomes, um, or critical intellectuals, individuals who critique the system but do nothing about it. And then this last and final category that they create is called a transformative intellectual. And the idea of a transformative intellectual are people within the system who see what's wrong with that system and are willing to work to transform that system. So one thing that I would say to teachers is that we have a responsibility to our students to transform broken systems for our students, right? The idea of transforming those broken systems to, um, for our students is to institute those things that we know are responsive to our students. This is what um, Geneva Gay calls culturally responsive education, or what Gloria Latson Billings has called culturally relevant pedagogy, or what Django Paris and Samuel Lean has called culturally sustaining pedagogy, right? The idea that, that, that culture or our students are, are at the center of what we do is important. It's an important recognition. It's an important understanding. It's important for achieving equity in education. And, and that means that we don't just respond to the student, but we, we, but we also respond to the conditions that the student, you know, is given to, that the students are given to learn to, because we understand that, is, that it is the conditions as much as it is our teaching that's responsible for, you know, um, student learning. Put another way, we have to move beyond just Bloom. Bloom is what we teach to Maslow, to who we teach. Right? And I think that Maslow comes before Bloom, right? That the idea or acknowledgement of who we teach presupposes a question or a conversation of what we teach, you know, seems to be an important one to me. For you can't teach me to write if you don't understand my background. And in fact, not only, you know, um, can't you, not only can you not teach me to write if you don't understand my background, you certainly can't teach me to write, you know, um, if I'm in a system with you that is not designed for me to become a writer. Mm-hmm. And so you as a teacher have to have a, have a responsibility to transform that system in ways that will be designed, you know, um, to support my learning. So the question is, how do we do redesign the system? you know, um, in order to create, you know, um, opportunities. Well, I believe that the basis of, basics of education aren't things like, or the basics of literacy education aren't things like reading, writing, right? Reading and writing are intermediate skills. The basic skills are things like pleasure, play, curiosity, and creativity. And for many of our students of color, these are the things that we take out of literacy. We, t- we, we remove the opportunity to play the opportunity to find um, joy and satisfaction and engagement in that work, right? We remove the opportunity to be curious, you know, to ask bountiful questions. We remove the opportunity, you know, um, to be creative, to create with words, to create with ideas, right? And this is a, and these are foundational skills to education, and they must be returned. And when students are hurting, things like healing are foundational skills. And indeed, healing is a skill that a teacher must practice inside of classrooms with students who have faced violence, structural violence, or other forms of trauma. Not only that, we know that nutrition and other type of socio-emotional 
and trauma-informed practices are important. Restorative practices are important. Multi-tier systems are important in order to redesign how we think about education. Community literacy schooling is important. Thinking about the ways to connect literacy to their lives, their actual lives, by partnering with institutions outside of the school in order to create you know, the relationships that are necessary to spark motivation, to spark interest, create playgrounds of ideas and words where young people can actually learn. This is the type of literacy that we need. This is the type of redesign of the system that we as teachers must see ourselves as responsible for. Before we begin to talk about um, Bloom, right, we have to first talk about Maslow. Before we talk about what we teach, we have to talk about who we teach and design the system of literacy education around them. And I, I mean, the, the goal here is, is not, you know, I'm expecting students to learn the way we teach, but finding ways to teach the way that our students learn. Absolutely. So as you think about the work that you do with and for teachers, how do you help them begin that process? Because part of it is clearly an awareness and just becoming aware of what we don't know. And then part of it is bringing some kind of new focus to their actual teaching and, and the ways that that is implemented through their writing pedagogy. So I'm curious to hear about some examples from some of your own work, some of the classrooms you visit, some of the schools uh, that you collaborate with. How do you work with writing teachers to go about this kind of transformational change? That's beautiful, um, Troy. I give you, I'll give you um, a, a, a few ways. First, I'll start off with, uh, you know, um, the high-level meta conversation, you know, um, in terms of what needs to happen, you know, um, in, in terms of transforming writing instruction and writing classrooms. Um, and then I'll give some examples of what, have ha what has happened, right? I mean, I, I deeply believe in what the American computer scientist, Alan Kay, says the best way to predict the future is to invent it, right? We have to invent the environments, you know, um, that are necessary in order to support writing among our young people. And, and the evidence suggests is that teachers don't believe in it. Teachers don't believe that they, are, they can be empowered to do it. Right. Steve Biko said that the most potent weapon of the oppressor are the minds of the oppressed. Carter G. Woodson said, if you control a man's thinking, you don't have to worry about his action. You don't have to tell him to go out the back door. He'll go without being told. And if there is no back door, he'll cut one out for his own special benefit, for his education has made it necessary. I do think that we have miseducated our teachers, especially teachers of writing. We have we have made them buy into systems of writing you know, um, that do not produce results. For instance, this idea of fixation on process writing, right? We don't, that, that, that the linear process of writing, one, seems to be illegitimate, and the idea that that linear pro process can be, you know, applied to all of our writers seems to be inaccurate. The idea of the predominance of a particular type of workshop model, you know, um, seems like it does not grow from it, or at least not grow firmly from the lives of all of our students. And if we don't give teachers the room, you know, to create, you know, um, the types of practices that are most responsible, responsive, excuse me, to their students, then we further handcuff these teachers. But a lot of this work deals with mindset work. It deals with empowering teachers to reimagine and reinvigorate, you know, on um, the system. Let me tell you how it has worked in some you know, um, some situations I've worked in. In one situation, you know, um, the students in this um, situation, they had faced a, a, a high degree of trauma, you know, um, within their communities. 
Um, they had classmates who were, you know, um, victims of suicide and other forms of violence. You know, um, we had, you know, um, undocumented or unauthorized, you know, um, citizens, you know, um, who were afraid and at risk. Some of the students spoke languages other than English. And what the teacher would do, you know, um, in this particular situation that I'm referring to, you know, um, would start every day off with an, an acknowledgement, you know, um, that things are happening, you know, um, in these young people's lives. She would use practices like mindfulness and meditation. So they would meditate before and after a writing, you know, um, assignment and a writing situation. And part of her pedagogy began, or part of her literacy pedagogy began with a type of restorative soul moment where mindfulness and quiet and meditation, you know, was integral to the writing process. What the research is showing us, just by meditating, students not only write more, but they write better than students who do not meditate. And so mindfulness in this situation was evidence-based, right? That it was a best practice that was utilized in order to be responsive to the um, particular students within this condition. Another teacher um, in another, you know, um, research project I worked on, you know, um, in order to get her students to write well, Instead of giving them, you know, a um, hundred writing projects, you know, um, in a semester, right? She only gave them one, which went against, you know, what, what seemed to be the common knowledge that you learn how to write by writing a lot. Well, that's not true. You learn how to write by writing a lot well, but the most important part of that is writing well, right? And so what she decided to do, instead of having her kids write a lot and each time they wrote, they would receive failing marks on, those, on, those, on that writing, she decided to slow things down, right? And so when she slowed things down, she gave them one writing assignment and she allowed them to re revise a lot. You know, she would give, you know, limited feedback at, on each revision. The first time every piece of limited yet targeted feedback that she would give, you know, um, was tailored toward building the success of the writer. No writer, you know, learns to write by failing to write. Good writers learn to write by succeeding at writing. And her idea was to give her students an opportunity to succeed at writing. And, and this was a socio-emotional issue, right? It wasn't about, you know, um, learning words or just cognitive. This was about giving her students, you know, um, the experience of confidence and the experience of success. Because a confident student becomes a successful student. And this is what she's, this is what she learned. And this, again, jives with the research evidence that we know individuals learn language, they become proficient language users, both in writing and in speaking when they're more confident about their language. And so the teacher, by allowing students to succeed and giving them time to succeed at a project, as opposed to running them through, you know, our pedagogical conveyor belt, allowed her students to actually gain confidence which was prerequisite to becoming, you know, um, good writers. These two examples that I gave may not seem to do, um, deal explicitly with, you know, on the kind of nuts and bolts of writing instruction that so many people talk about, but they were essential to writing well. They were essential to writing instruction, right? Mm -hmm. These two pieces of advice that were socio-emotional, non-cognitive pieces of literacy education were essential to the redesign of the system 
um, of writing and writing pedagogy in that classroom so that those classrooms became far more responsive to the students that were in them. Yes, I mean, it, it brings in a certain level of humanity at one, at just one level, like recognizing, as you mentioned a moment ago, that there are some basic human needs. And if you are feeling, as you noted, that, you know, no writer is going to learn to write by failing to write, um, how can we create those conditions for success? I, I fully agree with you. And I'm curious to hear how, how then do you help those teachers speak back to the literacy coaches, curriculum directors, principals, superintendents, parents, others who might say, well, this is the curriculum, or these are the assessment practices, these are the rubrics, these are the checklists and the worksheets that we're supposed to be using. How, how do you help teachers who want to take that more, uh, again, the only word I can think of right now is a more humane approach, uh, an empathetic approach to writing instruction. How do you help them uh, have those conversations with others in their school buildings and districts that are gonna potentially push back on them? Yeah, I think that's a great question too, um, Troy. I think that we, I think, I think this, this question is so, so um, essential, right? I think it's the most essential question that we have to, you know, begin to ask, and that is, you know, um, what does, what do empowered teachers, or how do empowered teachers look, right? Um, mm -hmm. Empowered teachers look like individuals who are armed with data. We have, to, we have to, you know, just make the case. One case to make is that the way that we've been teaching writing does not work. Given all type of, you know, um, self-efficacy, you know, um, you know um, data or evidence that we have, we have a lot of self-efficacy um, evidence when it comes to writing, you know, um, student writers. You know, as, as people get older, they fall out of love with writing. Young kids love to write because writing, you know, is fun. It's a playground. They get to play with words. They get to create. They get to do all of these amazing things. And then at some point, we, we strip away the pleasure out of them. We do all of these things. We follow these restrictive rubrics that, that aren't necessarily reflective of anything but, you know, a type of legislative you know, um, overburdening governance that we place on writing and writing teachers and that are not about success context. They're not about being responsive to students, right? These are laid on, right? We, so, so we got to empower, you know, our teachers with data. One piece of data is to show that what we've been doing isn't working. And Einstein says that if you do something and you find out that it isn't working and you continue to do it, that is the prime definition of insanity that in some ways we are insane and by continuing to do and embrace insane practices, you know, um, we are doing our students a disservice and we need to change our, change our habits and change our ways of doing things if we fundamentally and authentically care about young people, right? That argument needs to be made and teachers need to be, you know, well-equipped to make those arguments, right? That the way that we're doing this just isn't working. And the other piece is, you know, we, we have to encourage, you know, administrators and school leaders and people, you know, um, who are working with teachers to trust teachers and to trust teacher expertise and allow for innovation to happen within our classroom, to allow teachers, you know, um, to innovate practices that are responsive to students. You cannot be responsive if you are not allowed to be innovative. 
right? Because what works in one situation may not work in another situation, or what works in one situation on one day may not work in that situation, you know, on, on another day or on the same day at another hour, right? We know that. And so teachers need to be empowered to be able to innovate, make decisions, be responsive to their young people, defend their decisions, you know, um, and experiment in some ways. And the type of social experimentation that I'm talking about isn't the type of bow social experimentation, you know, like given, you know, black people syphilis, right? The type of experimentation that I'm saying is using some new ideas that are um, based on culturally sustaining, culturally responsive, culturally relevant education, you know, um, and then collecting data and seeing whether or not, you know, um, this innovation works. And then allowing teacher innovation to inform what we do inside of writing classroom. And by data, I don't just mean the type of legislative deficit data that's looking at, you know, um, what students aren't doing and defining writing based on logocentric, Eurocentric ways of making arguments. Right. By, by looking at data, I'm talking about the socio-emotional data. Are students having fun? You know, is this experience pleasurable? Do they have opportunities to create? Right. You know, um, are their curiosities being begged? Right. Are they successfully, you know, communicating using a, a, a linguistic repertoire, you know, um, that is the highly developed and complex. Right. You know, um, and some other data points that we may not be currently collecting, right? And so by being, allowing teachers to be innovative, collect new forms of data, right, that's based on a type of, you know, um, social justice desired experiment, you know, um, we might get at, you know, some new and responsive practices that are um, empowering to our teachers. But I would say the two things, you know, both deal with data, you know, um, and innovation. You know, let's let let's, let's inform the conversation with data, you know, um, and innovation. And I think we'll move the needle forward. Mm. You just brought up a point here about the role of research and education and the types of data that are valued. And you mentioned something there towards the end of your, your last answer about uh, social justice and design experiment. Can you talk just a bit more about that and, and the relation to what you would see teachers as active researchers in their own classroom and, and by again by asserting that agency and saying I am collecting data and here's why I'm collecting data and here's what this data tells me. Um, tell us just a little bit more by what you mean by that that idea of a social justice design experiment. Yeah so so within you know critical literacy um, research the work of people like Ernest Morell or even as far back as Shirley Bryce Heath you know, they move toward conversations of teachers as researchers. The idea that, you know, um, teachers collecting information, teachers as ethnographers, teachers as, you know, um, in some ways, researchers of students' worlds, students' lives, students' writing, students' texts, you know, um, is a powerful practice for transforming what we do in classrooms. Not only does it give us the evidence, it also gives us, you know, um, a lens into what's possible. And I think that that lens is important, right? And so, the idea of uh, social justice design experimentation, you know, is not a new one. You know, it, it goes back as far as the 1970s and 1980s. You know, um, Dale Himes talking about the ethnography of communication, Paulo Freire talking about problem-posing approaches to education, where he talks about reflection and action, you know, um, allowing our actions to be informed by deliberation, that deliberation inclusive of information, 
you know, um, that gets us to a truth, that gets us closer to a truth, because the extent to which we can define the problem to determine how well we can actually resolve it, right? You know, um, and so the idea of teachers as researchers, you know, isn't a new one, you know, and I do think that it's one that we need to embrace as an ethic of teaching, you know, um, in the service of, you know, um, equity. And I think that that piece is important. I think the other thing that I'm saying that's really important here, you know, um, are participatory research designs, right? That, that teachers can do a participatory approach to research with students, with community members, with, you know, research assistants from, you know, um, university members that can get us to, you know, um, new information, new and exciting information about our jobs in terms of innovation, what we can actually do. Let me give you a for instance. Um, one of the, and I won't name the writing project, you know, one of the writing projects, what they would do, they would, um, they would, um, they would pair teachers up with researchers, university researchers, and they would do um, participatory action research projects on student writing. And before they did any writing, you know, um, the youth and the teachers and the researchers were engaged in this research work, trying to understanding, understand the conditions by which and through which students wrote, the conditions of violence through which they suffered so that they could be responsive to those things. And then they began to build pedagogies that were fully responsive to those students, not, not absent of student voice, but in conversation with those students. So as part of this um, project, as part of this process, not only were teachers um, involved in the design of instruction, students were also involved in the design of instruction, which was, you know, fundamentally important, which was fundamentally, you know, um, crucial, you know, um, to that process, you know, um, in, in, this, um, in this point. This is what happens, you know, um, when they did it. Students began to talk about their lives. They began to talk about, you know, um, what they knew, what they felt they could offer to that space, what they felt they needed to get out of that space. Teachers could talk about what they could contribute and what they couldn't contribute. You know, um, the researcher could talk about what she or he heard and ways that they could make connections in order to fill in the gaps and fill in the blanks. And we get a redesign of that space just based on this type of participatory collaboration. Out of that writing project emerged some of the most beautiful and visceral writing that I've ever seen in my life. You know, um, it's been written about you know, um, in a lot of different places, you know, um, and I do think that these are, you know, processes that can be replicated when we begin to think about social justice design experimentation through participatory research models that include or see teachers as researchers, that include student voices, as well as, you know, um, collaboration from, you know, some type of external body or bodies. Yeah, and I can respect that you may not want to give a particular writing project site or uh, well, this writing project, call a shout out, but, uh, oh, go ahead. Close to me and I don't want to necessarily, you know, um, violate any trust. No, that I, I can understand that. But I, I think um, in hearing you say that too, though, knowing that there are places that teachers can go to find this kind of support and to find the kinds of um, collaboration that would lead to a genuinely integrative, thoughtful, empathetic, 
type of project and not just research being done unto them, but research being done with them and with their students in meaningful ways. I think it's just important to remind educators that um, despite the troubling times and high stakes assessment practices and other punitive measures happening in schools, there are researchers who care. And I think that's really important for them to know too. So as we come to a close, first of all, I, I do want to thank you so much for your, your work and that you do within four teachers as well as what you do within four students. Can you tell us just a bit more about the role of writing in your life um, as a scholar, um, as a public intellectual, and just as an individual in this world? Because I know you write for a variety of different purposes, and I'd be curious to hear more. Yeah, thank, thank you, Troy. I, I write a lot, you know, um, and just to talk a little bit about my personal background, and because we are friends, you know, I know that you know a little bit about my story, you know, um, and, and I, I do want to, you know, kind of like disclose because for me, this work isn't about, you know, kind of like academic leisure, right? It's not a, you know, um, a bourgeois, you know, type of, you know, like, like, like privilege that I, that I have. It's certainly a privilege, but it's a privilege born from fire, you know, born in the trenches. You know, um, I grew up in a brothel in Detroit, Michigan. My mother was a prostitute, you know, um, who after a while ended up taking drugs. You know, um, she became a victim of the crack epidemic that hit the streets of Detroit. It's not a sad story because mom is my hero. You know, um, who else would, you know, sacrifice so much, sacrifice her life for her children. And I learned that later in my life, the sacrifices that this amazing, wonderful person gave for me. But it meant that I lived in a system, in a situation, you know, um, that, that came with some hardships. You know, I, about age of 12, I was homeless, I'm living on the streets of Detroit that were cold streets. Um, you know, um, there are moments in my life where, you know, um, I would have to break into places like my school in order to, you know, um, to, to actually learn, right, and, or, and, act, and, and actually live. By the age of 12, I was also labeled as dyslexic, you know, um, by my school. I had an IEP. Um, I had one teacher, though. You know, I would break into the school, and one day she gives me a detention. She says, David, you get a detention. I took this detention that the student, that this teacher gave me, and I showed up at her class, and she gives me this stack of papers to grade. And then she pulls out two sandwiches, one for me and one for her. I don't know how she knew that I didn't eat after school, um, but she seemed to know because she kept packing extra you know, um, meals each day I would come back to that um, classroom after school to serve out of detention. Um, and she would give me more stuff to do. She allowed me to read what was on her shelves. She allowed me to ask her questions. And I know at times I must have been annoyed. She allowed me to, you know, um, play with ideas and writing and do some other things. And she fed me. She, instead of pushing me away from school, she called me in. One day I'd break into the school and, you know, I used to hide in the janitor's closet. That's where I slept. It had a little couch in it. And I see this bag with my name on it. I'm like, oh man, I'm in trouble. But being a curious kid, I walk up to this bag and I open it up and it has clothes in it and apples and other things. And I tell you, that was one of the most important parts of my writing journey and my writing story. And that is feeling cared for, you know, feeling loved in one of my most, in one of my most desperate times, in one of my most desperate moments, right? You know, that this teacher loved me enough. And this is what real culturally responsive education is. This is what real culturally sustaining literacy education is. It's the way that we care and deeply love our students. 
the ways that we respond to them. And so in my writing, my writing now today is connected to that response. I write because I feel like I have to. I write because there are people who do not have voices, who have in some ways elected me as representative of a set of conditions and circumstances to give voice to those circumstances and fields like ours so that these individuals do not go unrepresented. This is what Search Past Silence is about. It is about giving voice to the voiceless. It is about um, interrupting, you know, this thing that we do when certain individuals do not come packaged the way we want them packaged, right? It's this thing that we do when we blame them for not doing what we should be doing for them. For instance, saying that they are failing students when, actu and when in actuality we are failing students, saying that they are disengaged readers when in actuality we are disengaged teachers, disengaged classrooms, disengaged books, right? It, 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 it is this like interrupting of silence that I write from. It is that passion that I found in my own narrative, in my own story, that kind of grows up in me, that has given me permission to write. And when I see young people who come from situations like mine, they have a lot to say and they want to say it. The question now for me is, you know, I'm not about what inspires me to write. I have over 100 publications, five books, more on the way. The question for me is, how do I create platform, opportunities, conditions, to allow them to write. And certainly, you don't grow gardens by just pulling up weeds. And too often in our writing classrooms and writing pedagogy, we just pull up weeds. We don't think about how to fertilize the soil, how to plant the seeds and do the other things that are necessary to grow rich vegetation, to cultivate the garden. And that's where we gotta move toward. That garden was cultivated in me, you know, um, with the teacher, and a recognition that I'm connected to, you know, individuals who are far, you know, I'm more vast than I am, you know, um, and my hope, you know, in continuing this conversation around literacy is to, uh, in some ways, inspire our systems of teaching writing, our systems of teaching literacy, you know, um, to redesign themselves, to be responsive to all of our students, as beautiful, as wonderful as they are, and to give them amplification so that that beautiful, amazing, eclectic voice can be heard that's my work thank you david it's incredible to have the opportunity to speak with you to continue to learn from you to think about your story and what you are doing for other educators and for students i appreciate it thanks so much thank you troy writing matters with dr troy hicks is a writable podcast Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.